Welcome to Responding to Life, a podcast hosted by me, Josephine Atlery. Do you ever feel like you could use some guidance when life throws you a curveball? By listening to the narratives in this podcast, you will learn from other people's experiences and responses to challenging situations so you can fast track the learning curve to get ahead in your own life. Welcome to Responding to Life, Living Reflectively Through a Journey of Health, Fertility, and Parenthood. Joining me today is my special guest, Monique Farouk. Monique is a Maryland resident, wife of nine and a half years, former restaurant owner turned stay-at-home mom, and an infertility advocate, creator, and host of the amazing podcast, Infertility and Me. In Monique's podcast, she gets real about the emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual effects infertility has on its victims. She shares real stories and expert advice that offers healing, inspiration, support, and community. The Infertility and Me podcast is all about healing while on the path to family expansion. Today, Monique will share with us her experiences with infertility that include tubal blockage, hypothyroidism, uterine polyps, IVF, preterm labor, and on top of it all, being a NICU mom. So let's get started to hear from this inspirational infertility warrior. Welcome to the show, Monique. I'm so excited to hear all about your journey. I'll begin by quoting something that you wrote in your podcast summary. You wrote, infertility will bring the strongest man or toughest woman to their knees. Good news is you don't have to stay there. Mm-hmm. And I love, I just love how you like state that right from the jump off because it's, it's so true. And yet at the same time, people just don't know that they don't take that to heart because they're so in it. And you know that, yeah. um, but that's what we'll be talking about today. You know, everyone has a very different journey and no one's looks the same, which is why I love talking to other people about their experience. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned in the intro about you, you have the podcast infertility and me and, you know, in getting ready for this interview, I asked for some topics that you wanted to share and you listed out that. You had four years of infertility involving tubal blockage, hypothyroidism, uterine polyps, and then Mm -hmm. you had the experience of premature labor and you were a NICU mom. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, just spoiler alert for everyone, you have (laughs) a beautiful son and on your website, you wrote that he is your inspiration behind your passion for infertility advocacy. And when I read that, it just totally resonates with me because of, you know, those heartfelt words. Um, Mm -hmm. it was, it was just so exciting to, to hear someone else with a passion to help others who are going through this really tough journey. So let's, let's get started. And, um, why don't we begin with all the medical issues that you had even before you could start any of the assisted reproductive therapy? Yes, so we were diagnosed with infertility in 2012. And I apologize in advance, guys, if I get a little emotional. I'm kind of like in my feelings this week. 
Um, and so I'm just, I'm a crybaby this week. I'm just letting you guys know now. <laughs> so bear with me, bear with me. I'm going to try to keep the ball rolling. But we were diagnosed in 2012 after two years, two full years of marriage and being together and being a couple. Um, and we have been together for four years. All four years, I was never on birth control. And all two years of the actual marriage, I was not on birth control. And I have never been pregnant before, um, ever never any slip ups or anything like that. And I was on birth control in my early twenties up until the time where I'm um, right before I met my husband, like a year before I met him. And so I had never been pregnant before, never experienced that. And so I knew something had to be, you know, wrong, you know, as women, we tend to tap into our intuitive side a little bit more easily, you know, a little bit more quicker than when, than men do. And so hubby felt like, you know, you know, we were just working a lot. Stress level was high. So maybe that's why it wasn't happening. But I just kept telling him, like, I, something's not right. And so I went and got tested with the clinic. And they diagnosed me during the HSG testing with right tubal blockage. At the time, I had no uterine polyps and my hormone levels were, norm, were normal. And we had an IUI done after that. And it was unsuccessful. And I never went back. And we didn't see any more reproductive um endocrinologist until 2016, the spring of 2016, with a new clinic in a different state, um, because we had moved from Pennsylvania back to Maryland to our home state of Maryland. And during that four years, we just were (laughs) essentially walking around with this big old elephant on our shoulders and just moving along with life. But I was, I spent the four years productively and not that I needed to do it, but I spent the four years preparing my body um, physically by upping my game exercise and weight training. I just wanted to be strong and I just wanted to be able to carry this life no matter how it was going to happen. And I was open to adoption and I was open to all those things too as well during those four years. And I made, and I'm a Libra. So I kind of like think about all different sides of the situation and what could be and what couldn't be and just driving myself crazy with that and researching and all that stuff. So when I went back in 2016, the spring of that, that uh, 2016, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism through blood through blood work, and then um, she found some uterine polyps during the sonogram, the initial first sonogram to have a look at my uterus, and then I had another HSG, of course, and that is when they told me that I didn't have right tubal blockage anymore, and that it had probably cu- cleared itself out. It may have been mucus or tissue from menses, and um, so it was no longer there. So that was like a freaking miracle. I was so happy, but. You know, it was still devastating getting the news of hypothyroidism and the uterine polyps because both in conjunction together were probably preventing me from, you know, if I if my husband's sperm was implanting with the egg, you know, it wasn't I mean, um, fertilizing with the egg. It wasn't implanting because of the uterine polyps, you know. And so I was like 31, 32 years old at the time. So it was like, freak, man, I get rid of one problem and here comes another freaking problem, you know. Right. And then you have to wait three months with medication for the hypothyroidism before you can even move forward with, um, you know, oh. reproductive um, help. And then I okay. had to make sure that those uterine polyps were taken care of too and go to the post-op, get the okay for my OBGYN after she performed the procedure and the surgery. Mm-hmm. And then I could call my nurse at the clinic and say, hey, we're good to go. And, um, you know, my cycle starts on this, this, this date, you know, and I have to wait for that, you know. So, right. <laughs> you know, all those things that we go through with fertility issues, especially when there's a medical diagnosis behind your issue. And and, and so my heart really goes out for for women and men who have unexplained infertility and not having a definitive answer as to what's really going on. I guess there is some 
not comfort, but being able to know that you can have something to take care of versus yeah. it being so ambiguous definitely is, is tough. You know, yeah. we always are looking for answers, just something that we can fix so that we can just get the job done. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, so then, so then you took care of that. You were patient to go through all of those, um, cleaning up all those medical issues. And then you went into a cycle of IVF. And so, yeah, we went into our first cycle and we opted for a natural cycle IVF, which is a less medicated form of IVF. Okay. In the clinic that um, that took care of me, they told me that I was a candidate for it, even though I had hypothyroidism because the hypothyroidism wasn't affecting my menses, but it was making me ovulate too early, weren't maturing um, enough to be fertilized by my husband's sperm, essentially. And that was done um, with uh, checking my prolactin levels and then looking at my follicles at different stages of my cycle. And so she, she told me that she was thinking that I was ovulating too early. And so I was still a candidate, even despite all that, I was still a candidate because I'll gap my cycle every month, like clockwork within a day or two of when it was supposed to start. That's never been an issue for me, which was why it's so confusing when I got diagnosed, like, why am I not getting pregnant? Because I was getting my cycle. But, you know, there's always something that can go wrong with the body, you know, for whatever reasons. And so we had the first cycle that we went into and that was unsuccessful. The egg and the sperm did not fertilize. And so we waited till August of 2016 and did the second one. And that's the one that was the one for us that time. And so technically I only had, they at my clinic, they only consider it one try because it was never an egg retrieval. I mean, an egg um, transfer done. How did that pregnancy go for you? The pregnancy itself was was fine, actually. And I did have like some spotting scary moments when I was around 14 weeks. And it was about a week after I was no longer on progesterone and estrogen and the baby aspirin. You know, all those things that you do to maintain the pregnancy when you've been through fertility treatments and they keep you on it until you're 13 weeks pregnant. And so that was like a security blanket for me being on those three and ensuring that there was no miscarriage because with hypothyroidism, the chances of miscarriage increases. And so when I had that scare at 14, four days or something like that, it was, I was like, oh my God, I'm not on a freaking progesterone and estrogen, all of these crutches essentially that were keeping me sane and decreasing my anxiety. Now I'm, I just got off of it a week ago and I'm freaking bleeding. You know what I mean? So I was just really scared. I was going to lose the baby, but he was okay. And it was just that my placenta was a little too close to the cervix opening. I wasn't previa, but it was just a little bit too close. And so it was causing some spotting and some light bleeding, but I was okay. He was moving his heartbeat, bark, his heartbeat was great. You know, the pregnancy was really nice. It, it was just a really overall nice experience. And I had all the symptoms, you know, to to kind of like reassure me that he was still in there growing, you know. And uh -huh. I kind of, even though he was my first pregnancy, I started feeling flutters pretty early. And I was about 15 and a half, 16 weeks when I first started feeling the popcorn flutters. Uh -huh. And so that was really nice experience in that. And then by the time I was going in, well, about the week that I was, I was 23 weeks, five days when I went into premature labor, but it was actually a week before I actually gave birth because okay. they were able to stop it with the steroids and, and things in the hospital. So okay. I was in a week, I was in the hospital a full eight days before I actually gave birth at 24 weeks, four days. 
but the pregnancy was great. It was just, uh, it was really great. I looked good. I felt good. Um, I was at a really healthy weight and I was still walking the dog every day, taking my long walks and being able to be active and taking it easy and just trying to enjoy what we had worked so hard for for so long and had wished and wished for for so long and try not to think about anything going wrong. So it really was a nice pregnancy. It really was. And I miss it. I'm not even gonna lie. I miss not having been able to go the full term. And so I I went through a period of like mourning the pregnancy after I gave birth, even though he was here and he was in the hospital and he was thriving and he was trying to get healthier. I still had a period where I went through grief of losing that pregnancy so early and not feeling, feeling like it was completed, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, that, did you go through that grief? Like once he was safe at home? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I can't I imagine you have that that capacity, that emotional, mental capacity to do that as you're trying to care for him while he's in the in the NICU. Right. Um, yeah. So a lot of the grief was while he was in the NICU. And then even after he came home and he was home like a month or two or something like that, I still felt robbed. I still had some yeah. grief and I felt robbed uh, because I didn't get the full experience I, you know, I never got to take the pictures and I never got to do, you know, so many different things that never had the baby shower or anything like that. So there was some, there was some grief around the pregnancy as well, even after he came home to be quite honest. Yeah. And did you recognize that, that you needed to grieve that or did that just sort of hit you? (laughs) I mean, how did that come about? At first it was hard to even talk about because I'm like, you know, especially after he came home, like a lot of when a lot of times when I spoke about it while he was in a NICU, everybody was like, you know, that's I can understand why you feel like that. But then nobody asked me if I still felt that way when I came home. Okay. And, and my mom would ask me, she said, you OK? You know, I know you, your pregnancy was short. You know, it wasn't the full term and you didn't get the full experience. Are you OK? And I'm like, you know, Ma, no, I'm really not. You know, and I still grieved that pregnancy. I mean, even he was one years old and I was still grieving the pregnancy because that's what I had worked and I was dreaming about, I had had, you know, so many, you know, we have dreams about being pregnant and being able to do the things that that, that go around that. And it was very difficult and um, trying to take care of him and getting over that grief and still healing from the fact that he had to go through so much to live and to thrive and to come home, you know, so it was a lot. It was, a, it was definitely a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is, you know, that's, that's interesting that you, it's just, like I said in the beginning, how our journeys are so different. Yeah. You're mourning that the loss of not being able to have that full experience. Whereas when I was finally able to carry a full pregnancy, mm-hmm. because I had a loss at 17 weeks, mm-hmm. I refused to do any of those things. So I don't have any of those things either, like like yourself, of having a baby shower, having yeah. all those um, pregnancy pictures. I just refused any of those things. And, and I don't think that's just, that's why I just so find it fascinating that you knew to grieve that loss because I don't think maybe even to this day that I, I really grieved that the loss of, of not having those pregnancy experiences. Yeah. I think you just, and I think people just get so caught up in that 
well, your, your children survived and they made it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you should be thankful for that. But, but there's truth in, in the fact that you should yeah. be able to get over those feelings because they're valid. Yeah. Um, so, yep. yep. It's so many about... different variables to grief, you know, and. Oh, that's true. And, and, it's, and, and, and like you said, people expect you to get over it once you have the baby home and it's safe and, you know, you guys are all together at home. But it's just, it's just so much that goes, that goes on when, especially when you lose a baby or you give birth early and it's just, I wasn't going to let anybody tell me that, to be quite honest. Yeah. And the time I felt like somebody was trying to say that, I shut it down. Tell me about your, your NICU experience, because for me, mm-hmm. um, my eldest, actually, he was born at about 26 weeks, wow. but we adopted him. And so okay. he, we never, you know, we adopted him at 10 months. And so we didn't know what his experience was like and for mm-hmm. being in the hospital for so long. And then our very last set of twins, they were just in the NICU for just a week. Okay. They were born at, you know, 35 mm-hmm. weeks. But I I often wonder when I think about his birth story, like what that was like for him. Yeah. And, and he was alone. So he didn't have mm-hmm. like his birth mother there. Um, yeah. Providing him with like being held, like the simple yeah. act of being held. So I'd love to hear um, what that was like. Yeah, you know, it's, um, and God bless nurses and doctors, especially the nurses, because they're the ones giving the, a lot of the physical day to day, minute by minute care. And at my son's DQ in Washington, D.C., the nurses held the babies, especially for ones whose parents were sick or couldn't get in today. You know, I would watch the nurses hold the babies, especially if they were on bottle feeds. And when they weren't, and they're very young, um, when they're very, very young like that, micropremies is what they consider them under 28 weeks, if I'm not mistaken. And I had to wait, let's see, how old was Omar when I was able to hold him? I had to wait a month to hold my son. And so that was very devastating. And then the first seven days that he was born, he had to have surgery in his left lung. They went underneath his armpit. He still has the scars today. He got his, I call them his battle scars. And he's got the scars right here under his arm. And it's going to always be there. And it's because there was a pocket of air in a part of his lung, uh, in, a, in a part of his lungs that shouldn't have been there, and so they had to essentially let it slowly drain out. And there was this other machine next to him, and that that's what was keep taking the air out very, very slowly over the course of four days. And I just, it was just heartbreaking to see him like that. And so he was so very fragile and just doing everything to keep his little heart going and, and breathing with the oscillating machine and intubated for feedings and for the oscillating machine to breathe and stuff. And it's just truly heartbreaking. And I thank God that babies don't remember those sort of things, but I can't help but wonder if there's some kind of subconscious memory there mm-hmm. that stays with those babies when they're very, very young. And just, 
not being able to leave. I, what happened was I had him and I was there for three days like it was a normal birth after the C-section. And so when I went home, I was there for a couple days before I had to get rushed back to the hospital for hemorrhaging because there was still some matter from the placenta still in my uterus. And so I began to hemorrhage at home on a Friday night, very late at night. And so I was there to go to the hospital after I came home for a couple days. And then I'm right back in the hospital. And I was there in the hospital again for four days with a fever because they had to give me blood transfusions a couple times over the course of the four days I was there after the emergency DNC. And I'm just calling as much as I can when I can to to make sure he's okay and make sure he's being properly taken care of and all these things. And just looking at all my pictures that I had taken of him prior to me being in the hospital for the hemorrhaging and letting that drive me to get better so I could get back to him because all I wanted to do was be at the hospital. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be at home. I didn't want to do anything but be at the hospital with my baby. And I didn't want him to feel like he was alone. And I wanted him to not forget my voice because he's listening to nurses talk very softly all day and doctors and other parents and stuff. And I didn't want him to forget my voice or forget what I smell like because in the womb, they learn what their mother smells like. That's how they identify their moms when they're born because they can't see fully. And so babies identify their mothers and fathers by smell and especially the mother by smell and fathers by auditory hearing their fathers. So I didn't want him to forget what I smelled like or what I sounded like in, in my touch because I was allowed to touch him through the incubator. But when you, there's a special way that you have to touch NICU babies when they're that young and they're under 28 or 30 weeks when you touch them, you have to touch them very firmly and not move because the skin is still underdeveloped. And so neurologically, it kind of hurts them to be touched. Oh. And a lot of people don't know that until they actually have a micropremie. God forbid anybody has a micropremie. When you have a micropremie, their neurological system is very, very immature. And so when you touch them, you have to touch them firmly and not do a whole lot of rubbing. You can't do the rubbing thing mm. because it hurts them. It physically hurts them because okay. of their immature neuro- uh, neurological system and their skin being so delicate, it physically hurts them a little bit. And so I would always have to just put my hand somewhere really firmly on his chest if I wanted to feel him breathing. And then I could let him grab my finger. One of the first pictures I have is with him holding onto my finger and my mom catch- captured that moment for us. And he um, he must have smelled my hand and he he reached right for my finger. And so that was like the, the second day he was after he was born. And, um, you know, when I was in the hospital a week later after he was born, I just I just I just wanted to be with my baby. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go home. And to be quite honest, I didn't care how hubby was feeling sometimes. I just wanted to be at the hospital with him. I didn't want him to feel alone. And I and I didn't want him to think that he had been abandoned, you know, because that's, he's a human, even though he's so young, you know, there's some, all, all sorts of things that we're absorbing subconsciously, you know, mm-hmm. from the time we're born until the time we die. And so 
subconsciously I just didn't want him to feel like he was alone and I, I just that's all I kept thinking to myself you know and I had to really like slow down and just remember that his father was grieving too and, and mm. worried too that whether he was going to survive and scared right. that he wasn't going to survive and was afraid that he didn't want to get too close and get too attached because we didn't know if he was going to make it. After I came home from the hemorrhaging and had the surgery, the emergency DNC, and we were home and one night and um, I couldn't go to the hospital right away. I had to wait a couple more days before I could go because mind you, I'm still healing from my C-section and now I'm, I'm healing you know, um, in my lady parts because they had to go in there and remove all of this matter from from the DNC. And when it was after, it was the night. Okay, so after three days, it was like a Wednesday or Thursday, I went and I was finally able to get to him after almost a week. And so I went mm-hmm. to the hospital. I was able to drive myself at this point because after you have a C-section, you have to wait like eight to 10 days before you can drive. So I was able to drive myself there and... um and I had plans, I had every plan, every intention to stay there all night for 24 hours. And Hubby was like, why don't you come home, take a shower? And he essentially alluded to the fact that he needed me. Okay. Because he said, he said, I'm, you know, I'm going to be home in a little while. So why don't you just come home and take a shower and see how you feel? And so immediately, like, my spirit was just like, he needs you. And that's what I heard. And I was just me tapping into what he was saying intuitively because he was telling me to take a break. But at the same time, he was telling me that he needed me to and that he needed that intimacy with me as well, because, you know, he's a father who had a baby early. It's also his first baby. He's never had a child before. And so I had to I had to that that moment was the moment that I realized that I can't neglect him either. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah. he's still going to to his place of business every day, you know. Yeah. It's, it's not like he's getting he's getting time off because he works for someone and they're giving him time off. He still has to get up and go to work every day. Yeah, yeah. No, that is. Um, I love that you were able to tune into his feelings because one thing that I found with this whole infertility journey is that. Even though you have a loving partner, you can just get so wrapped up in in your personal journey. Like you just feel so alone. And that's actually like something that I, when people talk to me about it, I talk about how it's so lonely. And then, you know, I'll get questions of like, well, didn't you have, wasn't your husband there? And I said, yeah, yeah he was. But when I look back at that time, which is like 13 years ago, when I think about it, all I can see is just myself, just feeling so alone because I took all of that. Mm-hmm. I got to myself. Yeah. I totally relate. Totally, totally, totally relate, especially being the one with the diagnosis. And I was talking to someone else today too. And they were saying, you know, basically that we get selfish sometimes and that especially if you're the one with the diagnosis, we get selfish sometimes. And she was telling me that her and her husband created this Etsy shop and it made him feel a part of the journey more. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they were working together, doing the crafting and creating these these handmade uh, products 
And she said, you know, he thanked her one day, like, you know, I really feel a part of the journey more because everything is centered around you because you have the diagnosis and you have had these surgeries and all these things have happened and stuff. And it's easy. It is so easy to forget about the spouse. Oh, yeah. So easy as a woman to to, to forget about the spouse. It is so, so easy. And it takes it takes a moment of like self-reflection to be like, oh, my God, like. No, maybe we we haven't had sex in a couple of weeks or a month or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? Just like having those intimate conversations, talking about the freaking stars, you know, something we used to do all the time. Yeah, it's all consuming. Infertility yeah. is definitely all consuming. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I had that um that experience of what it felt like to be a partner when we did this last um sort of round with our surrogate. Okay. And um it dawned on me one day that this is what it must feel like to be the partner. You mm-hmm. want to do so much and you want to be in it, but no matter, no matter how much they tell you like what they need or how they're feeling, there's really nothing you can do. You're yeah. just standing by the sidelines and it sucks. Right. That's and so- it, it did suck. Yeah. And that's when I really got what it must have felt like for my husband. Right. Throughout right. All of that. It's so, um, it, it sucks that we have to like, <laughs> that we get these pivotal, uh, you know, light bulbs that go off, these epiphanies, you yeah. know, when we, and it, I almost felt guilty at one point because it's like, I, why didn't I have this epiphany a lot er- earlier? You know, I could have prevented right. some, some arguments or some disagreements and stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Totally. Um, so take me then to the day when you're finally able to take your son home. Oh my gosh. It was like, the whole day just felt like I was watching myself on a movie screen. And mm-hmm. it sounds like so cliche and so corny, but that's really what it felt like. It did not even feel real. And we we, we and we got up early that morning. He was supposed to be discharged by noon, so like lunchtime-ish. And they told us we could come as early as we like, just like a normal day. And he had passed his car seat test because there's a car seat test that babies have to do before they can come home in the NICU and they're born that early. And so he had passed that a, a few days early, earlier and he was doing really good. And he was like starting to push himself up off of um, the crib and hold his neck up and stuff. He was doing all of that when he came home. He was really, really strong. And he was 8.9 pounds. And he was just like nice. starting to look like a real infant, you know, because he yeah. really fit in my hand. And then now he's like this big what seemed to be like this big eight pound baby, but yeah. he was, but he was four months old. So he should have actually been like twice that size. Right. right. With his, you know, because he was born um, uh, 15 weeks, 15 and a half weeks early. And to me, it was just everything. And Hobie and I got up really early. We had showered the night before we put on our clothes. We want to take pictures. So we put on something really nice and that, Parents came to the house and they wanted to go with us and be there with us for that moment. Because like when I was sick, my dad was going to check on him for us. My mom would go and check on him for us. And, and they would, and they were on the list to be able to get into the NICU to do so for us. So that was like really special for them to, to be there, to watch him go home. And uh, we said our goodbyes to the nurses. And of course I started crying. It's like infertility just makes you such a cry baby. It's so ridiculous. (laughs) Like I was never, I never cried this much before. Like some terrible <laughs> things have happened around me and I have never cried this much before, before. Yeah. So crazy. And 
we get to the hospital and they have him, they let you pick out an outfit for him. So I had the outfit there already that I want him to come home in and his car seat was already there. And the nurses were holding him when we got into the room actually and just talking to him and showing him some extra love since he was going home and he was just looking at him smiling and stuff. And, um, and, and the time came when the doctor had finished the final report, the report for a baby going home in the NICU that long is like a hundred pages long mm-hmm. and, you know, his medical report and, and all that. And so the nurse, um, one of his nurses walked us all the way down to the car at the front of the hospital and she put him, she helped us get him in the car seat and stuff. And it was just, it was just, <laughs> it was just so special. It, it was, it was the moment that I had been dreaming about for six years because four years of infertility and two years of marriage prior to that, I always knew I wanted to have a baby with my husband, you know, and so it was just a long time coming and he didn't come home on any oxygen. Some babies come home on oxygen and need a little bit more time. He didn't come home on any oxygen and he didn't need any extra special devices to check his heart rate, you know, and keep his heart rate monitored. He was okay. And he was, he was, he was breathing at a hundred percent. His um, saturation oxygen was a hundred percent all the time. And he was okay. He was fine. And it was just, it was just surreal. And it, I look at pictures now and I still get emotional because I could have went through all of that with infertility and lost him. Yeah. You know what I mean? And boys, are um, and unfortunately boys who are born early like that, um, the success rate of them recovering fully and going home and not passing away in the hospital is quite a, a disparity between girls, ba- uh, premature babies and boy premature babies because girls oh. physio- uh, physically, they tend to mature quicker than boys. And so that's a real oh. thing. And so okay. when I was in that hospital the week before I had him, they they made sure they told me, you know, the chances of him surviving is very low, especially since he's a boy. And um, so just, you know, defying all the odds. Right. He did. It was just, it was, it was a miracle. And um, I'll forever, I'll probably always cry about it because I'm just so grateful. We're so blessed because he's so intelligent. I'm so fortunate in that I was able to stay home with him and watch him and watch and 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 and, and be able to watch him grow and all the milestones and just being there. And you know, a lot of parents don't have that ability for another parent to stay home. And so right. I just feel, you know, it's just such a blessing to be, have been able to watch him surpass all of his milestones early and oh that's great and um not have any mental delays um amazing and no serious physical delays you know he started walking at 13 months and his what they call his actual age is 13 months Mm -hmm. at the time and then his adjusted age which is the age he would have been had he been born in may like he was supposed to was nine months so he started Mm -hmm. walking at nine months adjusted 13 months uh, actual age and just fantastic watching all of that and his first words, you know, and just, it was such a vocal baby, which was reassuring for me because we didn't know what it was going to be like raising a baby who was born so early, even though he came home. Okay. 
And I, you know, that, that was a process too. It just, what if there are some mental delays? And of course we love him unconditionally, no matter what, but those are challenges, you know, that you have to think about and, and, and prepare yourself for when a baby is born that early. And so just watching him now, just do all the things that he does. It's just, it's so incredible. In the moment that he came home, it was everything that we had been waiting for. Everything that we had fought for. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) That's quite, thank you for being so like real and just sharing your story. I know how hard it is. I mean, and so I appreciate it. And, and you know, as, an infertility advocate that every, every story helps, helps someone feel less alone. Um, may not be the same exact journey, but little bits and parts of it may be yeah. true, just like as we saw here conversing together. Yeah. And so absolutely. I thank you for your vulnerability and I'm so glad that, uh, he's thriving. Um, you know, for my eldest son, the one who was adopted, but was, was preemie as well. Mm-hmm. He's 13 now. And, um, we always remind him that, uh, he was a fighter. Yeah. He was there all by himself and, uh, in not a developed country like the United States. Yeah. So it was even yeah. more like a complete, odds. yeah. Wow. So that's truly amazing. Mm. For your son, my son, they're fighters. Yeah. And, and you're yeah. right. It was, uh, like after all that, I, I had to stay home and mm-hmm. just watch. Like I had been fighting to become a mom myself. And after right. all that, uh, I was lucky to be able to stay home and watch him grow. And then the other kids, um, it was a total blessing. So. Yeah. It just, it just makes you so much more appreciative of the smaller things. Yes you know, the small moments. And that's one thing I can say about infertility and that I would say to anyone out there so that we can end on a positive note is that let allow allow the process and the journey to empower you and take control of the things that you can control and let go of the things that are not controlled that you cannot control, like your medical diagnosis. You can control your medicine and taking your medicine on time. And you can control what you eat. And you can control how much physical activity that you do. And you can control the kind of love that you give to your spouse and your significant other. But you cannot control the fact that you have such and such and such disorder or you your right tube is not working properly. You can't control that. So just submit to whatever needs to be done to help you. Right. And get in, and allow that that power to be given back to you because you never lost it. You just got to reawaken your power and control the things that you can control and find community. Yeah. Don't be a silent sufferer out here just trying to wing it. You know, it can right. really take you to a dark place. It really yeah. can. And so, um, yeah, you guys just be empowered and find power in everything and anything that you do. I love that. Thank you. You know, I was going to ask, I always ask at the end for some advice. And I think that's, that's the advice that I think we all need, especially those looking for or going through infertility. And, um, and I like how you said that, uh, we don't, don't lose our power. We just need to reawaken it. That's so true. Uh, I love to end on also a good note about shifting 
our mindset to positivity. And one way of doing that is through gratitude. So I'd love to hear a couple of yours for today. In this moment, in this time, I am just so grateful to be able to speak about my journey and my husband's journey, my son's journey, the way that I do. And I'm so grateful to Josephine for allowing me to to speak to you guys today and share that with you and for you being a listener. And I'm just so grateful for the fertility community as a whole, especially on Instagram, which is where most people are most active because the, the, the love and support is truly amazing and it cannot be there. There's no price that can be put on that. It definitely isn't. It definitely isn't. I'm just glad to be here and survived and, not one of the women who, who, who may have lost her life giving birth, you know. So those are my, those are mine for today. <laughs> those are great gratitude. And you know that it is amazing the community that's out there because I didn't have that. Like, no. was almost 20 years ago when I started my fertility yeah. journey and like there were no groups even to mm-hmm. go to. There was nothing and it was truly a silent process. It's so lonely, but now doing this and like connecting over social media, I don't know if that's just social media, but I think it, and you can use it for good. And I love how women are connecting and supporting each other, especially yes. with podcasts like yours and Fertility and Me. And at the end, I'll give everyone info on how to listen in. You have some great episodes. And Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm so thankful to you for coming on the show and really being honest and vulnerable with all of us. And I am so happy that you have a beautiful family and um, are able to enjoy him growing up. That's fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so again, Monique. Thank you so all much. Right. Take care. You too, dear. Thank you so much for joining me today for this special conversation about infertility with Monique Farouk. Monique said it best when she said that infertility can bring the strongest men and women to their knees. But the good news is that you don't have to stay there. In this day and age, we have the benefit of access to podcasts that offer us support and strength during tough times like infertility. So if you're going through the process right now or know someone who is, you're not alone. Try out Monique's podcast, Infertility and Me, which can be found at major podcast outlets, and I will link it up on my website. In addition, I offer private fertility meditation sessions and special workshops to help empower you through your fertility journey. Be sure to check out those services on my site, jatlurie.com, J-A-T-L-U-R-I. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Responding to Life, a podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to receive a bi-monthly newsletter with an exclusive and free video meditation, along with wellness tips and deals, please go to www.respondingtolifepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter by entering your email address in the pop-up box. In there, you'll also learn my seven-step process on how to meditate like a pro so you can stress less and live more joyfully. If you enjoyed the show, I invite you to share it with your friends and leave a rating and review on whatever podcast outlet you use. I look forward to sharing another inspirational story 
with you real soon.